Let's pray. Father, we need your help tonight, not just uh, that I obviously need it physically, uh, but Lord, we need your help simply in order to see, hear from your word what you would have us to see. Um, Lord, let us do it not just for the sake of gaining uh, certain kinds of information, but Lord, let it be that we would be better uh, instruments able to be used by you for service in your church and around the world. And we pray it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon. If you were here uh, in our service this past Sunday morning, Mr. Grimacki concluded, uh, one of the conclusions to his sermon was actually the quote from Spurgeon's final sermon he preached before he passed away. He was a pastor in London in the late 1800s, and the guy was so gifted, and you can actually read most of his sermons uh, in written form, there's no recordings, audio recordings uh, of his sermons, but you could read a lot of the, the sermons uh, that have been published and printed, and just was a phenomenally gifted speaker. Uh, every week, thousands would come to hear him preach at his church in London, and um, and just was was popular even among um, non-believers in the sense that they would they were just so uh, enthralled with his ability to speak that they would come to hear him. And and the story goes that there was um, one time that uh, thousands of people, as they normally would, came to his church on a Sunday morning. Except he wasn't there to preach. There was a guest preacher. And so the guest preacher um, got up and acknowledged that the crowd was probably disappointed that he wasn't Spurgeon, that Spurgeon wasn't there to uh, preach. He was somewhat of a uh, celebrity pastor in that day. And so this guest speaker um, acknowledged to the crowd, he said, I know you would rather hear Charles Spurgeon. And he can, uh, he maybe can preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel, is what that man said. Uh, he cannot preach a better gospel. Now, I don't uh, for a second think that any of you are here tonight to hear from me, uh, but I, I acknowledge that no matter who it is you would like to hear speak at any given time, uh, as long as they are preaching the gospel, they are an adequate speaker. And so that's what I'm going to attempt to do tonight. Every week when we meet like this, we intend to rehearse the gospel. We don't, uh, we're not very creative. You've probably noticed that. Uh, we're not very flashy or elaborate in what we do. We're actually simple for a reason. Uh, we think that nothing is better than just uh, reciting to ourselves and reminding ourselves of the gospel every week. We need to constantly be reminded of what is central to Christianity. Because if, if we don't, so if we were to try to emphasize uh, anything else, we probably would either think too highly of ourselves uh, or too lowly of ourselves. And we don't want to, to do either one. We want to just think uh, correctly about ourselves and about everything. And so the way that we repeat the gospel uh, through the Scripture readings, the way we pray, the way we sing... And hopefully these uh, lessons redirect us to what God wants us primarily 
to know as a church. Now, uh, we're here as, as part of the church, so as this youth ministry, uh, we are an instrument. We are a tool in God's hands so that God can make himself known all over the world. So what we're doing tonight is, is, not a, um, is not in competition with what others in the world are doing. This actually, I think, is a pretty strategic thing to do so that we can be as effective as possible uh, in the world. So, think about what we've looked at so far in Acts. And by the way, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. That's where we're going to start tonight. You've got a bullets in there that we'll take some notes in, I think, pretty quickly. And then we will uh, break into some small groups for discussion. So far in Acts, we have seen, even from the very first chapter, that verse we've kind of rehearsed probably every week, Acts 1.8, that God's plan was for His people to go to the ends of the earth as His witnesses, right? They were going to receive His, what? Holy Spirit. Jesus says, uh, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then Jesus actually left earth and went to heaven And the church waited until the Spirit came to them. So God's plan was for the church to go to uh, the nations. We saw that in Acts chapter 1. Now, what was the thing that primarily caused the church in Jerusalem to spread outside of Jerusalem? What happened? There was one specific event, but there was also just a general sort of theme. You remember? Probably three weeks ago now. Somebody said it. What? Persecution. Persecution, yeah. Specifically against, there was one man who was put to death. His name was Stephen. So you guys do remember this. And so the, the, the church scattered mainly because of persecution. And then last time when we were together, we saw God use Peter to actually take the gospel to some non-Jewish people, to some Gentile people, uh, to a man's a house named Cornelius in, in Caesarea. So tonight we're going to see that God's plan uh, was not just for the church to go to the nations, but it was also to gather the nations into what? Not just the church to the nations, but the nations to churches. Yeah, to actually form congregations. Uh, God means for both of these things to happen. So, everybody got bulletins? Hopefully quickly we're going to go through these. Uh, This might be the, the most number of points I've had in a message, maybe ever. We're going to try to do it very quickly. Uh, Fourteen truths. You're going to have to write quickly because I'm going to talk quickly. Fourteen truths to show that God, uh, that God's church is His primary tool for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. All right? Just going to, just going to name some truths. They're going to seem obvious. That's okay. Um, three of them come in the very first verse. So I'm going to read uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Follow along with me. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. They had also received the word of God. All right. Three truths that I think we can uh, get out of even just this one verse. Number one, God has given his word. I'll give you the first three and then we'll, and then we'll talk about them. Number one, God has given his word. Number two... The word of God is preached. The word of God is preached. And number three, some people receive the word when it is preached. So God has given his word. The word of God is preached. Some people receive the word. 
All right, the verse says that the apostles and brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. Remember, remember what we said about the Gentiles? Who are the Gentiles? Anybody? That's right. Anybody who's not a Jew. All non-Jewish peoples uh, everywhere in the world. So Gentile people, starting in, in Cornelius' house in Caesarea, had received the word. This would have been surprising for the Jews uh, for them to hear that non-Jewish people would receive the message from a Jewish Messiah about salvation, from, from, from Jesus himself, the Savior, the King of the Jews. Um, the word is, is preached, the word is received. It's received because it's preached, but it can only be preached because God gives it. So I want to make, make this clear even from the beginning. Um, this, is, this is especially why I think that, that most of what we do is relatively um, uncreative because it's, I think it's much more effective for us to rehearse and repeat what God has given us in His Word. Uh, we don't have to try to make things up. We don't have to try to be flashy. Uh, God has given us His, his Word, uh, and when it is preached, there are some people who receive it. Uh, here's the fourth truth. And we'll cover more than one verse with this one. Those who receive the word do so by the will of God. Those who receive the word do so by the will of God. Um, the way you could paraphrase that or restate that, I guess, would be that when people respond to the gospel, when they believe it, they do it because God allows them to do it. God causes them to believe. God gives them the gift of, of faith and allows them to believe. So what you have, starting in verse 2, really all the way down through about verse 17, so that most of that whole paragraph there, is uh, Peter uh, relays for the church in Jerusalem. So verse 2 says, When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Circumcision party is a way to describe Jewish people who thought that, uh, among other laws, that people had to keep being circumcised, they had to keep the Jewish law uh, letter by letter, rule by rule, in order to truly be saved by God, in order to find salvation in Christ. So you needed, you needed to believe in Jesus plus obey all these laws. Generally, that's what they, what they believed. Um, so, so they hear that people uh, who are non-Jewish receive the gospel, and are they excited? No. It says that they what? What's the word there in verse 2? Criticized, right? They were critical of it. Uh, they questioned Peter, some, probably something like, um, how is this possible? There's no way they keep our laws, therefore there's no way they can actually be saved. And so starting in verse... Um, Verse 4, actually in verse 3, you can, you can get an idea of specifically what they say to Peter. Uh, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Because the reason they would point that out is because it would be considered unclean uh, for Peter, who was a Jew, to even sit down at a meal with somebody who was not a Jew. Much less uh, that they could actually be rescued from their sins apart from being circumcised. So verse 4, Peter began and explained it to them in order. So there in verse 5, you see the quote, and the quote goes all the way down through 
verse 17. And Peter is just telling the same story that we looked at uh, from Acts chapter 10 a couple of weeks ago. And Peter's like, look, I had this dream. God showed me that there are foods that are unclean, uh, that have been called unclean, but now we are not to call them unclean. They are clean. And so God's, uh, just like a couple weeks ago we talked about this, uh, God's purpose in showing that. If God says it's acceptable, then it's no longer not acceptable. And the illustration then for, for Peter was, these people who you've previously thought of as unclean, they're no longer unclean. Go to them with the gospel and I will accept them and make them clean and save them. So Peter recounts all that about how he went, uh, how he was in Joppa, how he got sent to Caesarea to um, Cornelius's house. If you look at verse uh, 15, skip all the way down to verse 15. He tells them that as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if God, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's pretty good reasoning, right? Uh, Peter says, uh, to them, they received the Holy Spirit. This is similar to what um, Eric read for us in Luke 3. John had predicted, I'm baptizing you with water, but one will come after me who's mightier than I am, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus did. Uh, that's what Jesus offered for people. That's what was happening now to the Gentiles. So this is, this is Peter's uh, acknowledgement to them that all of this is part of God's will. Why did Gentiles come to Christ? Well, it was God's will. God caused it to happen. God poured out His Spirit upon them. God allowed them to believe. It was the same gift that God had given them to believe, according to verse 17. So when they receive, they do so by the will of God. Now look at verse 18. How did they respond in verse 18? Uh, Those who heard this. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they, what? Glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God has granted it. But this time there's some who are no longer uh, critical. They're glad, right? They glorified. So, next point, number five. When the word is received, some criticize, but others are glad. Some criticize and others are glad. Uh, if you look down to verse, uh, look at verse 23 very quickly. Talking about Barnabas. Uh, when he came and saw the grace of God, that is that God was gracious to receive Gentile people, he was what? Verse 23. He saw the grace of God and he was glad. And he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord. So, Uh, I think this is an important question for us. When you hear, or if you hear, we'll assume when, when you hear that God is at work in someone else's life, are you critical of it, or does it make you glad? Do you question it like, ah, there's no way God could be at work in that person's life? Or do you rejoice that God might actually be at work in someone's life who seems like they were far from Him? 
So think about how we respond when we hear that people are receiving God's word. And let's be glad when it happens. Number six. Those who receive the word are gathered into churches. Those who receive the word are gathered into churches. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of what? The persecution. You can read it back to me. The persecution that arose over Stephen. So we mentioned that's how the church spread. They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So to the Jew first, right? And then verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, okay, to the Greeks, to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. And to them also they were preaching the Lord Jesus. And verse 21 says that the hand of the Lord is with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So again, now you have both Jews and Gentiles believing and turning to the Lord. In verse 22, here's what happened. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So they sent Barnabas to Antioch, where all this was taking place. And when Barnabas came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad. He was not critical. He exhorted them uh, all to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. So they had turned, they believed. Now he's saying, stay faithful. Why? Verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Again, God is bringing people to himself. Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Remember Saul? I saw him a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, who previously had, had led the persecution against the Christians, Uh, but then was converted. Barnabas brings him, look at verse 26. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. For a whole year. So so what what are Paul and Barnabas doing for these believers, Saul and Barnabas, what are they doing for these believers in Antioch? They're bringing them into churches, and they're mainly doing what for the people in the church? Verse 26. For a whole year they met with them and taught them. Right? So that would be our way of saying uh, they, they did church together. They were on purpose in the way that they uh, discipled each other. So, number seven. Churches, they don't just meet, they establish a culture of discipleship. They establish a culture of discipleship. So these believers, uh, led by Barnabas and Saul, were teaching these new followers of Jesus what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. They were, they were teaching them the scriptures. They were probably meeting much like we are now, uh, and, and, and living near one another, and spending time with one another, and learning what it means to follow Jesus together. And this just became normal for them. This is just the typical way that they've operated, and it's the way I think churches have typically uh, have, have just kind of normally done things throughout the centuries. Number eight, those disciples then care for other disciples. Those disciples care for other disciples. <clears throat> uh, the, the very last part of chapter 11 talks about how uh, they got word that a famine was going to uh, take place all over the world. So look at the response to this famine. Verse 29. 
So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, so again, think about how normal this would be even in a setting like ours. We recognize that somewhere in the world, there are brothers and sisters who have need. So we take up a collection for them, and we send it to them. Have you heard of that happening? Like even, we've done that as a congregation, right? This is our way of learning to care for one another the way Jesus also cares for us. So disciples care for other disciples. Number nine, ninth truth. The preaching of the word invites persecution. Invites persecution. So we've already seen how, through Stephen, uh, some were, uh, some persecution had already begun. And, and the church was scattered because of persecution. Well, look at what happens at the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Um, do you remember back earlier in Acts when, when Peter and James and John and others were told that if you'll just keep silent about Jesus, we'll leave you alone? Remember that? Um, they, they continued to speak about Jesus. And, all, and now, here we are in chapter 12, and James um, is, is paying the price for it. He's laying down his life because of it as a, as a result. Um, when the word was preached, and when it bore fruit, people opposed that. Uh, and especially in Acts, we see that it invited persecution. Now, uh, for us, if, we're honest, if we honestly look at our situation, most of the time, our persecution doesn't really come from people who want to harm us for preaching the gospel. It actually just comes from um, the world wanting to make us like them. So in other words, it comes in the form of temptation and sin. We're, we're more tempted to stop preaching the word, not because people are out to harm us, but because the world seems so much more attractive, like sin seems so much more appealing. But these guys uh, actually dealt with opposition. So how did they respond? Look at verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but what happened? Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So number 10, the church responds to persecution with prayer. With prayer. Um, for the sake of time, I won't, I won't read all of this next section. Um, I'll, I'll see if I can summarize it, though. Um, as Peter is in prison and the church is praying for, for them, number 11, God responds to the prayers of his people. God responds to the prayers of his people. And the way that he does it is he sent, in Peter's case, an angel to the prison. And um, while the others are, are asleep, he tells uh, Peter, wake up, come with me. And Peter the whole time thinks it's a dream. He thinks he's just seeing things. But he, but he uh, is able to leave the prison. Nobody finds out about it. He shows up at the house where the church has gathered to pray for him. And he knocks on the door, 
And people are praying in the house, and there's a girl who comes to the door, and, and he, uh, she says to them, Hey, Peter's here. And the people inside are like, That's ridiculous. He's in prison. That's why we're praying. And so he's like just kind of left at the door, and they have to actually, uh, she has to go back and say, No, it really uh, is him. They recognize his, uh, his voice, and they, and they let him in. And uh, he is able to tell them how he was let out of prison. Now, uh, if we're honest again, we would probably say that God doesn't always respond to our prayers um, as extravagantly as that, right? Or at least maybe not as um, the way that we would think of as extravagant. But does God always respond to prayer? I think in a way he does. Um, it probably would, would be too far to say that God um, does things only because people pray, but it also would be rare to think that God uh, does something when people don't pray. In other words, his, the prayers of his people are often used um, as, as an instrument for God's accomplishing certain things. Um, God can do what he wants, but oftentimes he sees fit to act as we pray, both are part of His will. So God responds to the prayers of His people. Number 12, last three very quickly. Number 12, God does not share His glory. God does not share His glory. Look at verse 21. All this has happened uh, as Herod is trying to exalt himself and to put down the church. Verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes took his seat on the throne, and delivered an oration to them. In other words, he gave a speech. And verse 22, the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. They're exalting uh, Herod. And, and because they are attributing to him praise that only belongs to God, verse 23 says that immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. God, uh, this, this goes along with what, um, what we read in Isaiah 42, right? God says, my glory I give to no other. God does not share his glory. He gets the glory for the way he answers prayer, for the way uh, his word is preached. He gets all the glory. Last two things quickly. Number 13, God increases and multiplies his word. Verse 24. In spite of Herod and the others who opposed it, the word of God increased and multiplied. And number 20, uh, verse 25. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. I think that's an interesting phrase. When they had completed their service. Uh, their lives weren't over. The work of God in the world wasn't over. But Barnabas and Saul's uh, time at this church had come to an end. They had fulfilled their, their obligations there. So number 14, God sees his work through to the end. To the end. Now, as we're going to see, there was a lot more that Barnabas and Saul had to do. We'll, we'll survey a lot of that as we get into some of these later chapters in Acts. But here's the one thing that I think can be very... Um, assuring for us is that however long or short our ministry, our lives are in a given place 
or maybe even just in our lives, God is the one who ultimately works all the way to the end. He works past all of our lives. You, you, your work and my work will one day come to an end, but God's work only comes to an end when he sees it all the way through. It will be completely accomplished. And when the end comes, uh, that's when we, we can look back and see everything God did was right. Everything he ordained was right. Um, and the end is, is great because we will be with him. That's what he offers to us. Would you pray with me? So Lord, we want to be especially careful to give you all the glory, to not exalt ourselves, to not draw our attention upon um, what we might do, what we might be capable of, but instead simply to be faithful in what it is you have called us to do. Uh, and let us let us complete our service well. Let us um, be about the things you have ordained and called us to. Uh, and let us do that until the end of our days, knowing that you uh, will see all things through to the end. And Lord, we do look forward to the end um, when the affliction, when the opposition, when the persecution... Uh, is behind us, and when we reign with you forever. And we pray, Lord, that you would hasten that day. In Jesus' name, amen.